Welcome to this episode of the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dr. Allison Lee from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, and our guest today is Dr. Kevin Cromar. Dr. Cromar is the lead author of the ATS and Marin Institute of Urban Management at NYU Health of the Air Report. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Cromar. Yes, thank you, Allison. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So first, just to start, can you uh, give our listeners just a broad overview of what the Health of the Air Report is um, and the key takeaways from your 2018 to 2020 report? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, The Health of the Air Report is really a passion project that developed some years ago. Um, American Thoracic Society has published this report for uh, five times now, and it comes out every year or two with the goal to provide estimates of the health impact of air pollution for every city across the country. Uh, A lot of people are concerned about the health impacts of air quality, but they don't have a good sense on how big of an issue it might be for their communities. And so we're uh, glad that we could provide this report and provide information that, that local communities can understand these important impacts. And if you were to summarize the key takeaway points from this edition of the report, what would those highlights be? Well, the, the key takeaways is air quality is having an important adverse impact on the health of communities across this country. Uh, it's not always the same pollutant. It's not always the same magnitude. But no matter where we live, our health is being adversely affected from this environmental source. The important thing for people to know is we can do something about it. Uh, There are uh, efforts underway that we can make progress. And this report tells us exactly how much benefit we can expect as we continue to make progress towards cleaner air. And I think specific to that point, the way that you structure your analyses are based around the ATS's recommended air pollution standards. Can you speak to that? Yeah, we'll never get air pollution levels to zero. There's, it's always going to be something we deal with. But collectively, together, we have to decide uh, how much do we want to take action now to prevent some of these health impacts. Uh, there's federal rules and, and there's state laws that require air to be uh, uh, a certain level of, of cleanliness, you'd call it. Uh, and the American Thoracic Society and other health professional societies they make recommendations what these levels should be. Um, not to bore the people who might be listening to this, but we can give those numbers so people are aware. Uh, there's a pollutant particulate matter, air pollution, specifically the smaller size fraction, we call it fine particulate matter. Uh, ATS recommends that for the annual long-term levels, that this should be less than eight micrograms per cubic meter. Uh, for the short-term, the 24-hour limits for this important pollutant, ATS recommends it should be 25 micrograms per cubic meter. And then for a different pollutant, ozone, uh, ATS recommends that we should have a standard set at 60 parts per billion. Now, these numbers aren't going to mean a lot to people who don't work in this space. But uh, what's important for listeners to to understand is these levels are more health protective than current federal limits. Uh, Right now, EPA has a limit of 12 instead of the recommended level of 8 for the fine particulate matter limit. They have a standard of 70 versus our recommendation of 60 for ozone. So we can see there's still a lot of work to be done. 
Now, the important point isn't to get lost in these numbers. Really, it is this report shows what would happen if we were to, in fact, meet these recommended levels. And that's what this report shows, that there's thousands of excess deaths occurring each year that would be avoided, uh, tens of thousands of emergency department visits and hospital admissions be avoided, uh, right down the list for a number of important health outcomes that would be prevented if we were to take more protective action to improve air quality. And what I thought was really interesting in your report, I think just to really um, try to focus in on on that, is that your report notes that um, of the total, you know, over 3,000 counties in the contiguous United States, we really only have data from about 500 of those. Um, and of those, you know, almost half, a little bit less than half, are actually currently exceeding the ATS recommended guidelines for, you know, for example, the annual standard. Um, so, you know, this suggests that if we're able to, uh, you know, work with our policymakers and communities to reduce air pollution exposure, that it would have a big impact on the number of communities and the health of those communities. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this report, we only look at counties that have air quality monitoring that's approved by the federal government. Um, and of those, like you said, many of them are have air pollution levels greater than what we'd recommend to be at a protective level for public health. There's a positive side to that. There are many communities that do have good air quality. And, and for those communities, um, in our report, we have values of zero, right? Because they already meet those, those uh, recommended levels. It doesn't mean that continued improvement wouldn't lead to health benefits. It's just not included in this report. But for those counties, and there's hundreds of them um, that have an air quality monitor and, and those levels are above recommended levels, there are tremendous health impacts that we could avoid if we took a little bit more protective action. Again, this isn't getting rid of all air pollution. This is policy relevant increments that with small improvements would lead to tremendous public health benefit. Yeah. And just just to sort of hone in on that, I think it's really important the way that the the paper and the analyses are framed is sort of the estimated preventable national health impacts of reductions in PM 2.5 or ozone to the recommended ATS guidelines. And just to highlight, I mean, you mentioned um, in the report that there are two new improvements, um, one of which is the inclusion of preterm birth and low birth weight outcomes as new health endpoints. And can you speak to why you made this addition and, and really why, and I'll just put some numbers out there just so that listeners get a sense. But if we were to be able to move down to the ATS recommended um, standards, the estimated health impact would be a reduction by over 6,000 preventable low weight births and over 4,000 um, preterm births. So can you explain sort of why you were including these numbers or this analysis as sort of a new improvement in this edition and you know what those numbers mean not only for birth outcomes but i think you make the point also about uh implications for life course health yeah let me take that question into two different parts the first one being what are the different health endpoints we're looking at and then i'll maybe talk a little bit like you you highlighted we have some new health endpoints that haven't been included in the past it was specifically uh adverse birth outcomes but let me just touch on some of the health endpoints that we we consider in this report. Um, All-cause mortality, um, excess mortality is an important one. That's clearly something people are very concerned with. The magnitude of these impacts um, are in the thousands. Um, 
what when we talk about it at the national level, a helpful comparison sometimes is the magnitude of excess mortality is a similar magnitude to alcohol-related traffic fatalities. So uh, we don't, in the report, we don't provide commentary, whether these numbers are big or small, or uh, we let the readers kind of decide that for themselves. But that's the relative magnitude of, of mortality risk we're talking about in this report. Uh, other health endpoints, we have uh, major morbidities, including uh, myocardial infarctions. These are heart attacks. Um, ER visits for a wide range of cardiovascular and respiratory health outcomes. Uh, something we added in um, several years ago is new incidence of lung cancer. Uh, that's a critically important health endpoint in, in relation to air quality that we estimate in this report. Uh, and then we also have not necessarily uh, acute health events, but we also have what we call work loss days, school loss days, adversely impacted days. Uh, just because it doesn't end in a major health event, we're st our health is still being impacted. And there's millions and millions of these adversely impacted days across the U.S. from air pollution. Now, that's what we've included for the last several years. This year, with funding from the Environmental Defense Fund, we were able to add in a new health outcome, which is uh, adverse birth effects, including both preterm birth and low birth weight. And the way we make decisions on which health endpoints to include in this report, uh, it, we want to make sure there's enough scientific evidence that supports a finding there's a clear causal relationship between outdoor air pollution and an adverse health effect. And we feel like in the case of adverse birth outcomes, that the scientific evidence is now sufficient to allow us to make these estimates. This is something EPA in their analysis doesn't currently include, uh, but we hope that from this report and the, and the other evidence, that's something that they will include in the future. And you you mentioned the um, sort of nationwide impacts, but what I think is really helpful to us, you know, as um, people and and healthcare and hopefully advocates for our communities, is that in Table Three you also list the top twenty five cities with the most to gain by meeting the ATS recommendations for PM two point five. And so can you speak to, you know, if you're a healthcare provider, you're a member of the ATS and you read this report, how do you suggest that we, you know, as, as health experts, communicate with our community leaders, um, policymakers, other governmental organizations to stress the importance of the report and really try to translate this report to action? I think what you suggested is the perfect way to do it, is to look for the local numbers for the city that you live in. Uh, we have a ranking for the top 25 cities that would have the most benefits from improved air quality. But even if your city's not in the top 25, the report provides estimates for the excess mortalities and all those other health outcomes, what's occurring in your city uh, right now. Uh, an important thing to remember is the characteristics that lead to a city for having the most to gain. Essentially, it's a combination of two factors. One, having relatively poor air quality, but two, also having a large population. Uh, the number of people exposed to air pollution is going to drive a lot of these numbers. So if you live in a large city, you have a lot of incentive to try to improve air quality. If even just by a little bit, you're going to see a lot of uh, uh, improvement in public health. You're going to see a lot of gains in terms of reducing some of these health outcomes. But I think your suggestion is exactly right. If, if a clinician is looking to use this report in their advocacy efforts or their communication efforts, 
looking at those local numbers and, and letting people know what the impacts are in a way that they can feel it and understand it. I think that's the right approach. And I think to sort of build on that, you know, there's, um, I, I would say, sort of an extensive and growing body of literature, um, many of it emerging from ATS members, um, in fact, demonstrating that uh, racist policies that, again, were you know enacted decades ago have really led to disparities in air pollution exposures that directly then relate to uh, health outcomes and health disparities that we see today. And so just kind of going back to one of the earlier comments that there's a number of communities that are not monitored, how how can you sort of bring these two pieces together? Do we do we know anything about, you know, which communities have monitors, which communities are more likely to be monitored? And then for those that don't have monitoring, what do we think these relationships look like in those communities? Yeah, this is a great question. There's essentially two gaps that you might think of kind of equity gaps in how we look at pollution exposures um, that are that are difficult to include in this type of report. But it doesn't mean those issues aren't relevant to talk about and think about in our research and in our communications with the public. Those two gaps are essentially within a city. Uh, you might have uh, several monitors, but it doesn't mean those monitors are located in the areas with greatest pollution levels. So that's one gap. We don't always understand that intra-urban variability that occurs, that heterogeneity and exposure that occurs. Uh, this report essentially looks at regulatory value. So what's the highest monitored pollution level at the monitor locations? That doesn't mean it's the highest monitored, it's the highest pollution level within that city. So that's one gap we might be missing. The other gap is like you highlighted, we don't have monitors in every county. Uh, fortunately, any county above a certain population, or if you're not above that population level, but there's pollution levels above a certain, you know, guideline level, there is require requirements to have air quality monitors place. So even though we have a minority of counties, it's a majority of the U.S. population lives in a county with an air pollution monitor. But, though, but rural communities absolutely experience adverse effects from air pollution, and it's too bad that we're not able to capture all of that in this report. Allison, I'd like to ask you a question. Is In your work on these issues, uh, thinking about some of the equity issues that occur, populations having different levels of exposure, populations having different levels of health, risk, um, even if they have the same exposures, how have you how have you tried to address that in your research or in your clinical practice? Yeah. So I think, you know, as we were talking about earlier, I think that it's critical that we start our research projects with community engagement, um, that we really try to reach out to uh, key community and policy stakeholders, understand local issues, understand, um, you know, exposures that the community themselves are really concerned about and try to tailor our research uh, to those factors. Um, and then, you know, building on those relationships so that as you grow out your research project, you're constantly feeding back research results to the communities and trying to help them um, advocate for themselves uh, and and produce policy change. So that's, you know, I, I would say that that's really the goal of of the work that we do is to try to have solution and policy oriented research. And that really starts with community engagement. Um, let, let me if I could, I wanted to highlight just one way that this report does try to address those unmonitored counties. 
Um, in the past, we've been limiting ourselves to pollution levels above ATS recommended levels in counties with a monitor. But this year, we actually have a, an addition to the report. Um, with some supplemental funding from NASA, we were able to the very first time look at health impacts specifically from pollution from wildland fires. And with this funding, we were able to do it in a way that not only looks at counties with air quality monitors, we were able to look at every county across the U.S. and make estimates for exposures from wildland fires and then the resulting health impacts that come from those exposures. So that was a very exciting way for us to look at those previously unmonitored and unmeasured counties. And those results are quite striking. Uh, in the report itself, we have a, a table that shows the exposures for both monitored and unmonitored counties. And you can see in, in the Western US, in the Midwest and the Southeast US, there are a large number of unmonitored counties that have important health relevant concentrations of pollution from wildland fires the community should be aware of and, and, and try to think about ways to address those health risks from that important emission source. Yeah, in, your, in this report, um, the preventable health impacts of wild, wildland fire smoke exposure, I think, are really eye-opening. Um, you estimate that approximately 28,000 deaths, um, 5,900 new lung cancer cases from PM 2.5 alone. Um, and if, my, if I understand correctly, again, this is sort of compared to the ATS guidelines. Um, or is that wrong? It's actually not. So the one part of the report is policy relevant estimates. What are the health impacts from pollution above recommended guideline levels? For the wildfire health um, analysis, we're looking at uh, all the pollution from wildland fire. What are the specific health mm -hmm. impacts from that from that portion of of the air mixture? Um, and so it's it's not based off of policy. This is just based off what are the total health impacts from wildfires across the U.S. Mm -hmm. It is interesting from a policy perspective, however, because you mention um, in the article that, in fact, sort of these guidelines by the EPA on air quality would not apply to um, air pollution resulting from wildland wildland fires. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would point out just a few examples. Um, imagine you are in California and you live in a community where the pollution levels already far exceed EPA federal limits, right? What this report shows you is even on top of those health burdens that your community is experiencing, you also have these uh, not insignificant number of health burdens occurring from wildfires. So that's that's one scenario. You have other scenarios. Take a community in the Midwest or, this, or Southeast U.S. That, that you either live in a community without a pollution monitor or the air quality is relatively good. You might already meet the federal air quality standards. Uh, those communities, and, um, and as estimated in this report, there's still a burden from the emissions from wildland fires. It's not always the wildfires you see from uh, the Western U.S. and Canada. In the Midwest and the South, it's often agricultural burning, which, which goes into these estimates. But this report really provides a nice look at the magnitude of health impacts from the burning of either agricultural land or wildfires, forests, or grassy hills, whatever the, the composition of the of the fuel might be. Uh, but it's it's a large number of mortalities, a large number of adverse health impacts, and it's really exciting that we can release these numbers for the public for the first time. And the U.S. EPA has um, signaled that they are 
you know, in the process of revising their um, their standards for air pollution. Um, and perhaps that we will see a revised standard for the annual PM 2.5 uh, metric, but and maybe not to the levels that the ATS would like, um, but likely that that they will not adopt a revised PM 2.5 daily standard. Is that your reading of what's happening now? And and why does this matter? Why is the focus on the daily standard so important? Yeah, so this is getting, for most listeners, this is kind of hard to wrap their head around right at once. Um, but essentially, there's multiple standards EPA will set for particulate matter. One deals with the everyday, long-term average that occurs over a whole year. The other one is, what's the maximum levels that might occur on any one day um, um, across the year? Um, what ATS has pushed for is we need to do better for both of these standards. And Allison, like you said, kind of the what's the indications from EPA, what they've released to date, they haven't finalized everything, but it looks like they're likely to have a more health protective annual standard, not quite to the level ATS recommends, but an improvement from the current standard. But they're unlikely to change that short-term standard or the levels of the very peak exposures that might occur on a few days um, within the year. Uh, the reason the ATS has been so vocal in suggesting EPA needs to take action on both and not just the annual standard, it really gets back to what we were discussing before about there's there's different exposures that happen even within the same community. Um, so you have one monitor, a few monitors that are trying their best to represent the exposures across a city or a community, but we know there's some hot spots that are away from those monitors. It's it's our um, opinion and it's it's what we've shown through a lot of our research is that the better way to address those those hotspot exposures, those pollution levels that are occurring, the very highest levels within a city, really is often best addressed through improving that short-term standard and not just the annual standard. So if you care about health equity, if you care about environmental justice like we do, uh, you really need to make sure you're improving both that short-term and long-term standard. Um, and hopefully EPA will, will do the right thing by us in that way. Yeah, and just to sort of, just emphasize that point, right? The the environmental justice point about this is that because we do see variability in exposure across communities, we have to remember who lives closest to those point sources of air pollution, who lives closest to you know a power plant, or who lives closest to a major roadway, um, and typically those are lower income communities and communities of color. So. By, by not focusing on the short-term standard, I think we're losing a real opportunity, potentially losing a real opportunity. We'll see what the EPA decides to do um, in, in addressing environmental justice concerns. And if I could just point a, a kind of a, a final point on that, no matter what EPA does or doesn't do uh, in, in regards to the levels that they set, it's really up to the states to then put plans in place to meet those standards. So as, as ATS members and, and other interested parties are communicating at the local level, they can use this report, they can use these numbers, and they can argue for strong action no matter what EPA does at the federal level. And we really think that's a real value of this Health of the Air report. Yeah, that's a, it's a huge contribution to sort of give us, the ATS community, concrete numbers and tools to be able to go back to our policymakers and community leaders and really try to advocate for the health of our communities. So I think we're we're running uh, short on time. Any any last comments that you'd like to make about the the report? 
No, just recommend the interested people. They can find this report in the annals of the ATS. Um, there's also a website where you can find a link to that journal article at healthoftheair.org. And I thank ATS for their support of this important research. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.